What's up everybody? This is Lisa Fields, founder and president of the Jew Through Project, and this is six highlights from the Jew Through Project for 2022. Number six, the unspoken documentary in partnership with DLC Media. Number five, the Juneteenth documentary in partnership with Our Daily Bread. Number four, our Right Now Media series through eyes of color. Number three, our Courageous Conversations curriculum. Number two, our Courageous Conversations Conference 2022. And number one, Problematic Passages featuring Dr. Esau McCauley and Dr. Joe Vitale. We've had an incredible year. I mean, God has done some amazing things that have caused growth and we have reached millions across the globe with your help. Help us continue the mission and the vision of the Jew3 Project at jew3project.org. We need your help to help people reimagine faith through apologetics. Every gift helps equip and help us to expand in 2023. Grace and peace. Hello, welcome to the Jew3 Project podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jew3 Project. Well, thank you for watching another episode of the Jew3 Project podcast. As always, I'm your host, Lisa Fields, the founder of the Jew3 Project. And as you can tell, I'm not in the studio today. I'm uh, interviewing uh, David Bennett, who's in the UK. So the time difference uh, didn't allot me enough time to get uh, to the studio, but I am in my home office. So that's why you don't see the the background you're used to seeing. Um, but like I said, we have uh, David Bennett. I feel like he's been a friend from afar. We've known each <laughs> other through uh, other friends. I've heard we've heard of each other through uh, mutual friends, and so this is our first time actually meeting and talking outside of social media. But I'm so glad to have you. Welcome, David. Thank you, Lisa. It's a pleasure, and uh, thank you for having me on the podcast. It's it's just such a delight to be here. Yes. Before we get into today's episode, tell our audience just a little bit about you and mm-hmm. um, so they could get to know you better. Sure. So I uh, have been living in Oxford for the last nine years. I just submitted this week the, my corrections for my doctorate. So I will become a doctor at Oxford University, uh, which is really exciting. And um, I'm from Sydney, Australia. Originally, I was an anti-Christian gay activist, um, and I had a radical encounter with Jesus in a pub in the gay quarter of Sydney, and I now work as an evangelist and a preacher and an academic, looking particularly in the area of systematic theology and how it can inform our ethics today and renew our ethics as the church and make our witness even greater to Jesus. So that's that's me in a nutshell. <laughs> 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 no, I appreciate you coming on and uh, you have uh, such a wealth of knowledge on the topic we're going to be talking about today. So we're on a uh, the it's Bible series talking about the reliability of the Bible. We talked about it from different layers, but I thought it was important to talk about um, is the Bible a helpful tool for people in the LGBTQIA community because a lot of people... Um, see it as harmful. 
And so last week with Esau, we talked about uh, is the Bible, mm. uh, should black people trust the Bible? Uh, and so yes. this week I want to talk about should LGBTQIA people um, trust the Bible? Um, if someone was to ask you, you know, should a LGBTQIA um, person trust the Bible? What kind of would be your response? Yeah, so I think my response. Or would let's be, start here. Yeah, yeah. Let's start here. Well, let's I start think, here. before, before yeah. we go there, let's start. Yeah. Why wouldn't LGBTQIA why wouldn't not want to trust the Bible? Mm-hmm. No, that's. A, I think it's great to start that way because it, there's so many reasons why LGBTQIA plus people at least ostensibly, at least on the surface, uh, shouldn't uh, trust the Bible or wouldn't, it wouldn't be, you know, right for them to do so. When we look superficially at the text and we treat it as a proof text or a manual for our lives, rather than the very human but very divinely inspired word of God, we just treat it that way and casually read over it, it looks as if it's saying there is no way in for LGBTQIA plus people. There's no way in for a relationship with God. There's no way to have romantic love. There's no way to experience human flourishing door shut in your face. And I think that superficial reading of scripture and that superficial uh, representation of the scriptural world that those texts are written in produces a really harmful effect. And that's why I'm so passionate about scholarship and deep biblical study for the church so that it can actually receive the good news that's a little bit deeper under the surface. And Werner Heisenberg, who's the father of quantum um, physics, he said, when I take the first gulp of the glass of natural sciences, uh, I, I, well, I, became an, I became an atheist. But then when I kept drinking the glass, I found God at the bottom staring up at me. And for me as a as a gay Christian who's now celibate, the journey of taking the first sip of my own sexual orientation and the Bible <laughs> very much caused me to become an atheist because I thought, how could God allow me to have these desires, do nothing to change them and condemn me for them? That's such a sycophantic kind of God. There's no way I would ever worship that God. And so... I had to go on a journey um, to discover the love of God before I could really read the Bible properly because there's so much wrapped up in that that I couldn't actually see the message. So, And even when I became a Christian, which we can talk about later, it took me 10 years, deep study at Oxford, to really get what was Paul saying in Romans 1 and 1 Corinthians 6, 9. And what, why did Leviticus say what it said about homosexuality? And actually to, I still believe the same things now, but the process to get there is very different. The way that I get there is very different. And so what I would say is just with the history of the church, the history of um, how LGBTQIA plus people have been oppressed by the church, it's just very hard. It's a high bar to get over, but it's not a bar that the love of God cannot um, overcome and it overcame Jesus's love overcame that bar in my life and my eyes were open to the text and um, I actually discovered a passage in Isaiah 56 which no one really <laughs> talks about uh, and actually my own home church in Oxford is based on Isaiah 56 being a house of prayer for all nations 
And straight after that text, 600 years before Jesus even came and brought inclusion to the Gentiles, to all nations, nations, all people groups, um, and actually came in the form of a slave, identifying with slavery and oppression and breaking the chains of it. You know, before he did any of that, <laughs> we see 600 years before that, there was a sexual minority at the time called eunuchs, people who couldn't produce, who didn't have the capacity to do so, didn't fit in the easy binary between male and female uh, we might see in Genesis. Uh, and that question was clearly a live question for the prophet Isaiah. And he hears God saying to him, to the eunuchs who obey my commands and live according to my Sabbaths, I will give within my house and its walls a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an eternal name that will never be cut off. That is like a radically inclusive God. It's not compromising the created order, how God set up creation between male and female in marriage and for that to be the only context for sex, but saying, I will give you a name even better than that if you lack it. And then his own son, Jesus Christ, becomes a eunuch <laughs> for the sake of the kingdom of God on the cross and gives up having children and gives up having a family and a wife. He was very human. He would have want, wanted those things because they're created goods. But he gave them up and identified with sexual minorities, gender minorities that don't fit um, within that easy binary because of the fall. And so we just see this incredible gospel of like radical inclusion that doesn't undermine the created order, but actually shows queer people like me an even greater name than what we lack. And so I live in that hope and I live in that name of Jesus. And that's why I think ultimately the Bible is extremely good news for LGBTQIA plus people, because God promises to give us something even greater than what we lack because of the fall. So that's why I would say that. <laughs> that doesn't mean it's easy. It really isn't. Uh, and I don't want to shirk all the other issues. Uh, but I think that message of like inclusion and love and compensation for what we lack because of the human, our human fall in Genesis, I think that ultimately is incredibly good news. And it's brought me so much joy. Mm -hmm. No, that's very, very powerful. Um, thank you so much for sharing that. That's, that's, I think, important for our listeners to know. Um, when we think about the passages that people struggle with, you mentioned Romans 1. Uh, you mentioned the passages of Corinthians. You mentioned Leviticus. How, talk about a little bit of your journey with those passages and what have you, yeah. have you how have you kind of reconciled that uh, as a gay man? Well, Lisa, it's going to sound strange, but actually for me, Romans 1 and 1 Corinthians 6, 9, maybe not Leviticus 18, but <laughs> um, Romans 1 and Leviticus, I'm sorry, Romans 1 and 1 Corinthians 6, 9 definitely have become my favorite passages in scripture um, because they actually mark my inclusion into the covenant of God through Christ. Um, hmm. And actually in Romans 1, what's happening is in, in the... In the first century, Emperor Claudius in AD 45, he elicited um, an edict saying to all the Jews to please get out of Rome because you're all driving me crazy with your arguments about Crestus. So could you please leave? <laughs> and so the mm -hmm. emperor of Rome told every Jew to get out of Rome. That is how divided 
the world was after Jesus came because there was suddenly a new righteousness, a greater righteousness than the law that people could be justified through and could be made right with God through. And that's just to give you an idea. It's almost like the issue of sexuality and gender today. It's that kind of potency. And it was all the way back in the first century. So when Paul is writing Romans 1 and around 50 AD, maybe five to 10 years after that edict, and the Jews are slowly starting to come back to Rome and things have settled down a little bit. He's writing a letter right into that context. And he's saying to this particular group of Jews who knew about Jesus, but were saying to Gentiles, actually, you need to obey the law. You need to get circumcised. You need to come under the law because you're not quite righteous enough yet. Even though you believe in Jesus, it's not enough. You need to become Jewish. He wrote that this letter to rebuke them and to try to show them that they need the greater righteousness of Jesus. And not just that, which we see in Romans 2, if you go and read Romans 1, talks about the great cosmic fall in Genesis, that desires were frustrated that we can expect there to be gay people and trans people because of this cosmic fall. He then uses that truth of the law that could be used to condemn. He uses that instead to condemn those who are condemning through the law and to defend gay people and to defend trans people, to defend all people um, from the condemnation of the law and to point them back to the true hope of Jesus, the greater righteousness that came by faith through him. And so Romans 1 is actually about my inclusion as a gay person into God's righteousness. It's not actually about my condemnation. God has made a way where it seemed like there was no way. And I just think it's such a good word when you see that. So we can't just read Romans 1. We have to read Romans 1 right to Romans 3. And what does Romans 3 say? We all fall short of the glory of God, straight, gay, whatever it might be. <laughs> we all need this greater righteousness and it will fill all in all. And I think what's so interesting for me as a gay person, almost I love being gay because it creates a lack that then the greater fullness of God can fill. And then there's a greater glorification of the Lord in my life. And people say, well, don't you just want that to go away? Don't you just want to be straight? I'm like, no, I want to worship God in the way that by the mystery of creation, fall and redemption, I am called to worship him. And that is a special worship that I can give him. And so I don't see being gay as something that I have to run away from or try to change. It's actually something I can bring under the Lordship of Christ and demote to him. Under, under his lordship. Um, and, and I chose to be celibate. And some people are called into what's called a mixed orientation marriage. So it's not just celibacy. Sometimes people hear my perspective is just everyone who's gay needs to be celibate. I think that's a bit extreme. <laughs> so everyone needs to come and wrestle with Jesus, find that inclusion that Romans um, 1 to 2 is actually about and um, find the pathway to radical holiness. And then 1 Corinthians 6, 9 um, talks about this word asenokoites, which it means like male better. And it's a transliteration of Leviticus 18. Uh, but what's really fascinating about it is Paul says, yes, if you define your life by being a, a gay person without God, like, and, and, and sexually active in that without God, you don't have the gift of justification. You will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Like you will not inherit God's promises. But if you come and trust Jesus and receive this faith and are justified, and basically this is his message that then he says, such as some of you were, you used to define your life by that action, but you no longer do. In other words, the early church was full of gay people. 
<laughs> it was full of people who used to define their lives around that action and no longer do so. It doesn't mean they've ceased to have that orientation or they ceased to groan in that way for the coming kingdom, for the resurrected body. But it does mean that they have been included in the covenant, that they are children of God alongside straight people. So that is why I love 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and Romans 1 to 2. Leviticus 18 by itself, uh, maybe less so because I think you need that second step of Jesus to come and fulfill the law for us because none of us could fulfill the law. So that is why I think ultimately those texts are just beautiful texts about how Jesus has met the challenge of same-sex desire, of gender dysphoric desire, and actually provides a different pathway to, say, our post-secular society, which says that actually is who you are and that should define everything that you are. I think it's a vital, important part of our humanity, but does not define and should not define all of us. Um, only when we rest in the love of God and in the Lordship of Jesus, I think, do we find that that identity is released to be something which doesn't burden us, but actually brings us freedom. Mm -hmm. No, that's that's extremely helpful. And I think a lot of people haven't understood the text that way. And so I always think about Romans 1. Like you said, you have to read all the way through. And so when you get to Romans 2, you see that the people that condemned the people in Romans 1, God is like, you're no better than them. And uh, <laughs> and so it, it brings an equal level playing field at, <laughs> at the cross that oh, no matter yeah. what our struggle is, uh, we are equal at the cross and you, we have no right to condemn another. So reading Romans 1, apart from reading Romans 2, uh, reading Romans 3, doesn't give you the whole context of what Paul is trying to communicate. And that's why we have to read the text um, in context and not just proof text, because then it will become a problem um, when we just proof text. Absolutely. And I think one of the other fascinating things is you often hear more liberally minded people saying things like, well, there wasn't really such thing as a you know monogamous gay relationship in the first century. Surely that didn't exist. And it's really talking about a kind of abusive form of same sex sexual activity that was common in that time. And, you know, there's nothing really in scripture about a gay marriage that's monogamous and loving. So we can just say that's fine then. And actually, scripture doesn't say anything about it. So it's just condemning a certain kind of same sex activity. Um, but what I find really fascinating is Paul says, you who judge do the same things. In other words, Paul's saying to us, no, there is a whole lot of homosexuality. There are a whole lot of gay Jewish people. <laughs> uh, and you're all doing it. And you all know what you're aiming for. In other words, I don't think the Jews were had a like fallen Greco-Roman view of homosexuality that was like horrible and power-based. I think the Jews had a much more redemptive idea of sexuality. So that totally undercuts the liberal perspective that this is just talking about an abusive form of same-sex activity. It's talking about the kind of reversal of the male-female differentiation within marriage, which represents God's glory 
um, unity within a diversity that the physical difference of male and female somehow mysteriously reflects the difference within unity of the Trinity. And so I think that's where, like, I'm just not convinced, Lisa. <laughs> I try. I would love to be convinced. Like, I have a lot. I would love to go get married and have a partner and adopt an orphan and <laughs> buy a poodle. <laughs> you know, I would, but I just, I, I cannot see I cannot see that in the text um, when I really, really deeply read it. And I, I, for me, it's a precious word that, as we've talked about, is so positive in other ways. So that's why I'm not um, a pro progressive leaning person in that way, or what's called side A, because I just I don't think the text um, works that way. And I've also, you know, spent a lot of time with Tom Wright. He was my professor in St Andrews. I asked him a lot of deep questions about these passages. It's like Tom, this really matters for me. He's like, I know. And he's like, I don't want to give you a false answer. So, you know, he really encouraged me to look at it. And he said, you know, I'm convinced a certain way. And I just couldn't see any other way. You know, it was very clear to me. So, you know, people say, well, I see the text a different way and I don't agree. And it's all just relative. And I'm like, well, what about just you're maybe undermining the power of that authority? And uh, is Jesus really Lord in your life? Um, and so that's obviously a really hard conversation. So when we talk about the Bible, it's not easy to socially um, support that conversation and do it well with virtue and love and you know, this week in the Church of England, we've seen a really painful moment where the the church decided and voted um, in favor uh, of allowing same-sex blessings, not to change marriage as between a man and woman, but to allow some churches in their conscience. So to make it a kind of relative issue, you could have, you know, side A or side B views, if you like. Um, and we're going to try to incorporate everyone. And I just, I don't think it's possible really to do that with the text. Like, I don't think it allows that. I think that's an undermining of the Reformation, that Scripture is the ultimate authority. This Sunday, I was at the this church called Holy Trinity Clapham, which is where William Wilberforce was inspired by the Word of God, by the Bible, to abolish slavery not in spite of the authority of scripture, but because of it. And I was so emboldened just to think this word matters so much. This word is good and it sets free. When we really understand it in its true context, as it was given, it is really the word of God quickened to us. And so Lisa, I'm in the middle of it right now. <laughs> so maybe you got me nice and raw yeah. and ready to talk about it. But yeah, I don't know. How, what are your thoughts, Lisa, on what I've said? Do you have anything to add or maybe you have some wisdom for me? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. I think that's, that's helpful because people are wrestling um, with these passages because of the way that people have misused them. And I think that proof texting, you know, we may land in the same place as somebody that proof texts, but you can proof text and actually do damage. But when you talk about the redemptiveness of the word, you can land on the same conclusion as a person that proof texts, but it looks vastly different in how it's communicated. And one mm -hmm. leaves people feeling condemned and an, another feels leaves people feeling redeemed and hopeful. And I think it's the the method is in which you communicate the message that that makes the difference. And also, mm -hmm. I think what what you add, David, and the reason why I wanted you to be on the podcast is because you not only you have the lived experience, 
but you also have the academic background. I mean, you're you're finishing up your PhD at Oxford. So you, it's not like you just looked at these texts and said, oh, I, I, I believe that. Or you went to like this uber conservative school and got immersed in that. You actually immersed yourself in the opposite, actually, academic space um, and had to wrestle with that. And I think that makes your position even more powerful because you do know the counter arguments and you also have to navigate the experience of this reality. And so that makes your testament, your testimony more powerful. Um, David also has a book uh, that he's, he's written on this. Um, Yeah. It's called a war of loves, the unexpected story of a gay activist discovering Jesus. And, um, and T Wright wrote the forward for me. Um, and, you know, Lisa, I just thought, you know, C.S. Lewis says uh, in Shadowlands, uh, in that film anyway, it's an adapted quote, but he says, I have no answers anymore, only the life I've lived. And I think it gets to a point with these mis- mm-hmm. these questions of mystery where it has to be a narrative, it has to be a story, and the Bible itself has to become a story. It can't just remain an abstract text, as you so elegantly have said. You know, the the I think that's what Paul means by, partially anyway, by when he says... Um, the, the letter of the law kills, but the spirit gives life. Um, in other words, when we use scripture in the way you've described, it actually brings death to people's lives rather than when we use it in the full knowledge of the gospel and the full story of the gospel. And we rightly divide it. It brings like the greatest life ever. It brings resurrection life. So, you know, I think I wrote that book, A War of Loves, to try to help people find that path as I found it with Jesus. And I know it's the best path, path for LGBTQI plus people. That's why I wrote the book, because I desperately love that community. And I just, I so long for everybody in that community to know that that love, um, as it really is, not as it's twisted to you know, be understood by all sorts of different discourses, but it really, as it really is in life, as we really experience it, you know, every day of our lives, um, believing in Christ. So yeah, it's such an honor. And I, I just feel honestly like you understand Lisa and you have that wisdom and insight. And I'm very keen to do anything I can to try to support those efforts of, you know, pushing back against that dangerous conservatism rather than that, you know, deeper rarefied orthodoxy, um, as well as providing some challenge and push back to to the more liberal perspective so thank you so much for understanding that and valuing that and um, having solidarity with me in that um it's precious <laughs> yeah i'm glad i could glad i could support uh, your work um you you mentioned something that i, I want to kind of hone in on that i think is important for our audience you talked about kind of a mixed um sexual orientation uh, marriage. And you said yeah. it, but I don't think people understand what that is communicating. Mm. I'm I'm thinking, and, and I could be wrong on this, when I think of somebody like my friend uh, Jackie, who said publicly that she's not attracted to, to men, she's still attracted to women, but she is attracted to her husband. And I was watching something, um, I think it was, uh, what is... Uh, he wrote, is God anti-gay? Sam. Oh, Sam, Sam Aubrey. Yes, um, yes. And he has a, a ministry um, on sexuality. Um, I'm not sure if he's still doing it, but years ago he had one. And he had a couple on there. And the gentleman was saying he's never been attracted to any 
any women, but he was attracted to his wife. And he was like, you only have to be attracted to one person to get married. And even if you're um, heterosexual, you still have to, you're still going to be attracted to other people. You just make a choice to commit. And so I thought that was a really um, um, interesting way of framing it and a helpful way of framing it. Uh, But is that what you're alluding to when you when yeah. you make that statement? So yeah, that was quite quick on off the mark there. Um, yes, mixed orientation marriage. You know, I think statistically, I think some work was done on this. About fifteen percent of gay people who choose to submit to scripture and live a scriptural way experience this kind of surprising grace uh, where they will meet an opposite sex partner and. I remember being um, in Oxford in my second year there um, back in 2014, and I met a dear friend at at the seminary college there called Wycliffe Hall, and we were having a conversation, and we're actually on the ball committee together, and he was quite camp, so we were kind of, you know, talking in... (laughs) more camp way together <laughs> and he was a training trainee minister and so I thought yeah he's definitely gay but he has a wife you know so I was trying to work this out and I said to him I, I don't understand you that you're attracted to men but you're you're you know you have a wife and he said yes well David the thing is you don't always fall in love with the sex you fall in love with the person and I just thought that was a really beautiful you know, push back a little bit with this discussion of sexuality. We've become so reductively obsessed with sex and these questions that we have to really not lose the personal reality, that we're walking personally with God and we're walking personally with each other. And in that space, surprising things can happen, including these mixed orientation marriages. So I think that's where there's just this broader space where, yes, we need to talk about our identities, but just not make them so ultimate that we push out other uh, options and that it's not just about being a celibate gay Christian and that's the only way, but it's it's about actually giving your life to Jesus and saying, Jesus, lead me in your way and he will do things that often you can never imagine or see. I don't think I would ever imagine myself as a celibate that had any joy. I, I think before I became a Christian, I would have thought celibacy was like the worst thing ever. And, I, you know, it, it would have absolutely shocked me Um and disgusted me probably <laughs> I would be talking about being a celibate gay Christian so that's the kind of thing that Jesus does it's this upside down kingdom and we just end up walking ways that are opposite and go against the flow of what is seen in the world because we have a transcendent source of meaning through which we can you know we see everything differently like C.S. Lewis says you know I believe in Christianity because you know by the sun, I see it every day. It's just like shining on the horizon. And that's how I feel about every issue of our humanity. It's that sun. It provides a different light than just, you know, reason and general revelation. It's like this incredible light of revelation, which just, you know, I have been so passionate about my whole life since I experienced it. So, yeah. Yeah. David, uh, the last question I want to ask you, and it may lead to a conversation Um, so one thing that I've been telling church leaders is that if you, if you want your church to be a place that feels safe for LGBTQIA persons, then you must not necessarily lean so much on overemphasizing marriage and intimacy that you have to highlight that intimacy and relationship is not just sex, 
but also you can have deep intimacy in friendship. If you don't highlight friendship, you don't highlight intimacy in friendship. And every time you make an intimacy illustration, it has to do with marriage. Then people, persons that come in that are um, a part of the LGBTQIA community, and they don't feel that they'll ever be in a mixed um, uh, mixed marriage in that way, then you leave them hopeless uh, because you're saying you can only experience intimacy if you get married. What about singles, persons that want to experience love, that want the embrace of a person, a hug that's not sexualized? Um <laughs> It has to be a more balanced way in which we communicate or when people come in, it's like, well, if I can't get married, if I don't have the attraction, then I'm left on the margins and this is not a place where I can thrive. And so if we want to create communities and churches, we have to kind of have a robust, more robust view of intimacy outside of the just the context of marriage. Is that something that you think churches struggle with today? Oh, Lisa, I think so deeply the church struggles with that. And let me just give you a little bit of maybe an academic answer first. Um, I think if we go back to um, the Reformation, when the Reformation happened, there was a really interesting historical moment, especially in the Catholic Church. Um, There's a, a kind of tradition of thinking about love, which very much put a duality between God's love and human love. So God's love was this agape love that was unselfish and self-sacrificial and heroic and totally not about the self. And it just came and rescued us. And our love is like kind of twisted, selfish, turned in the wrong direction, could never be good. Um, And so we just all needed the agape love and then no other love is important, right? And what that dualism set up is an unhealthy, what I call an unhealthy view of eros love. Because I don't think in the classical tradition, at least, eros love was not this idea of sex at all. In fact, sex was understood as a dangerous thing to eros love sometimes. So actually, sex endangered true eros because eros was defined as this unitive desire for the good. It was the unitive desire for God in us as human beings and in God towards Mm -hmm. us. And so we lost desire. We lost that desire is good. So there's this um, 16th century Lutheran thinker called uh, Anders Newgren, and he wrote this book, big tome, if you want to go find it, called Eros and Agape, where he sets these two forms of love against each other. And then uh, Pope Benedict um, XVI, who just passed, his incredible theologian, wrote in his encyclical um Deus Caritas est, God is love. He undid that mistake where he he said, no, 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 no. Eros, this desire for the good is actually ennobled and made good in agape. Agape perfects Eros and Eros drives agape and that they have this mutually reinforcing relationship. And so for celibate people in the church, that is good news. But if it is true that your erotic desires, your desire for intimacy can only ever happen in marriage, there is no place for the celibate. There is no more expansive view of Eros where we can experience intimacy and deep you know, um, satisfaction one with another um, in the church that isn't sexual but is erotic, that's hard for people to get their heads around, right? How could something be erotic but not sexual? 
there are ways in which, <laughs> you know, when you're with your parents, it's like, I just love being with my mom. I love the way she smells. I love the way she cooks. I love the way she gives me these hugs. And I just feel so drawn to be one with my mom. And it's not sexual, but it's erotic. And so all of the relationships we have that are well-ordered, you know, eros can obviously be dangerous and selfish and turned in the wrong way and disordered. And that's why we have this anxiety about sexual goods because they're so attractive to us. And so there's this kind of disorder. But I think we need to reclaim eros as a church. We need to reclaim that that is a good thing when it's well-ordered by agape. And so that means celibates have tons of other relationships that they can experience intimacy in. And actually marriage isn't the main point. Marriage is the sign of a greater signified, the future heavenly reality when all of creation's eros, all of creation's desire will be perfectly aligned with the will of God. And we will be in this ecstatic state that I don't think we can even imagine right now. And that celibates get to start the party now. So we're the party starters. And, you know, and marrieds join in that party and say, we're pointing to it in our marriage and it's glorious. Hallelujah. And we're all together in one heavenly throng. And we are not competing with each other. We're lifting each other up into the ecstasies of what's to come through Christ. And that's my hope for the church, that there's this beautiful um, yeah, place for celibates. And we see that reflected all the way through scripture. In Paul, he says, I wish you were as I am. I wish you were celibate like me. I wish you had that eros well ordered, but clearly you don't. So I'm going to give you a concession because you're burning in lust. Bad, bad, bad. So you can get married, but like, that's not really the point here. Like, I wish you were living for that heavenly future. Um, and then in Revelation, it talks about those who've not defiled themselves with someone on our, our virgins. They have a name that no one else has. They have a song that no one else can sing and they follow the lamb wherever he goes. And so it's a spiritual warfare image that celibates almost like ahead of the army singing the song um, that the army of Israel used to sing when they went into battle. So like celibates have a really honored place. And I think we just need to regain that without undermining marriage. And actually, I think that's one of the really hard tensions in this conversation is when you validate celibacy, then everyone thinks you're not validating marriage. And I, I want to come against that and say, no, by validating celibacy, you actually lift marriage higher into the heavenly things. And I think that's what Paul did with his ethic of marriage and saying, you know, marriage is about loving your spouse as Christ loved the church and reflecting the unity of heaven and earth coming together. And the celibate helps to reorder marriage. So there's this interdependent relationship between the two. And I just think it's awesome. I think the Bible's great. I'm on board. <laughs> Let's go with what it actually teaches and maybe throw off some of the shackles of that bad desire theology that we've inherited. Um, and, and go for the good one. <laughs> so that's, that's what I would say. I hope it's <laughs> no, not that's... too complex for people. Um, there's a lot in there, and I'm obviously an Oxford scholar, so if that was a lot and you just think I can't ever use the word eros or erotic in that way, I'm sorry, that's totally fine. Take my point and remove the language. But, <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's, that's what Christian ethics teaches, and I think the church really needs. Yeah, no, that's helpful. And I think about David and Jonathan. And David saying that he loved Jonathan more than even the women he was in relationship with. And then I think about that in a couple ways. David's uh, first few marriages that are noted don't come about in a romantic, intimate way as we would think about romance in this day. He gets Saul's daughter <laughs> as a gift. That's not necessarily him like falling in love with her. Uh, then I think about Abigail. He kind of gets her after Nabal is 
who Nabal is, uh, a jerk. Um, but you don't see him having these relationships with women that are necessarily come from these deep romantic relationships that we see on the Hallmark Channel or on TV. Um, it seems that he, but he does have an intimate relationship of trust, love, and respect in the context of Jonathan. That is not sexualized. And so while he has sexual relationships with these wives, he doesn't have intimacy there, but he has intimacy in the context of deep emotional intimacy in the context of his brotherhood with Jonathan. And so I think that shows us the, the dichotomy in scripture. And I think it's important for us to note that because some, some people try to sexualize that relationship. And by oh, yeah. sexualizing that relationship, you actually show you actually fall into the trap of making all intimacy sexual. Well, that's a really. But I it, think that's a, yeah. Go on, Lisa, please. No, I I just think that it, it it's a more helpful way, and it's 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 what I think is happening in the culture today. So younger people who describe themselves as fluid, oftentimes experience deep emotional. Um, Sorry, my Siri was jumping, trying to jump in the conversation, thinking I was talking to her on my on my computer. I had um, that happen the other people day. Mm -hmm. it, <laughs> um, people who are sexually fluid, I think what could be happening, and I'm not saying this is happening in every case, but in some cases, people are experiencing deep emotional love that Dave, the kind of love David had for Jonathan. And because they haven't realized there's a healthy way to experience that in friendship, they think the next jump is sexual. Absolutely. And so yeah. that's, that creates a fluidity. And then they're confused because they think, oh, I love my friend and I want to spend time with them. I want to hug them in non-sexual ways. And they think, oh, I haven't experienced this in opposite sex relationships. So this must mean I'm gay. And it's really, it's like, no, it's God's design for us to love a friend so much that we would lay down our lives for. And it's not just Absolutely. God's design for a husband to lay down their lives for a wife. It also gives that context for us to lay down our lives for one another as friends, as neighbors, as brothers and sisters in Christ. So the Bible, Paul isn't even not limiting that kind of love to marriage. He's saying that should be the context for friendships, that you should be able to sacrifice your life, have deep love for one to another, forgiving one another. All of these one another's are not just confined to marriage. They're just how we should treat people in general. And so I think when we don't have that distinction of knowing intimacy outside of sexuality or outside of sex, we fall into really interesting traps. And the last thing I'll say this, I was talking to a, a, a apologist and he was telling me that a, a therapist he worked with was seeing this interesting thing that was happening with housewives. And I was like, well, what's the interesting thing? He was like, they were having these housewives that were married in, in, it was like evangelical spaces, conservative evangelical spaces were having affairs with one another. And, and the therapist said something interesting. They were like that because they started experience their husbands, I guess were working and were very stoic. Um, and, and they didn't really have 
places to talk or express intimacy. They were just there and they were sexual partners and roommates and they had kids. But on these the times when they were being with their other house, the other stay at home moms during the day, they would find deep intimacy. And because they equated, had an unhealthy understanding of intimacy, that intimacy would turn sexual. And they said they wow. were starting to see a trend in some families. Wow. And I, I thought that was very interesting. And it showed the point. I'm sorry, my <laughs> airport came up. Um, it, it, it really reinforced the point that I think when we don't have a healthy understanding of intimacy, it could turn, the enemy can use that to create unhealthy oh. attachments. Oh my gosh, that is such a wonderful articulation of everything I think about. I love those real, those real things. I love the real, like what's really going on here? You know, what's behind the surface of the, you know, the, the Sunday morning face of the church and how can we get in there and, and create theology that can help that space become a better place mm -hmm. for Jesus to rest his presence, you know, because it's what it's all about. It's about being a hosting place for Jesus's presence, right, in the world. And so I just love that. And I think one of the things I also see is that we forget about Jesus. We constantly try to construct an ethic without Jesus. Jesus was celibate. Jesus was a eunuch for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus didn't ever marry, and he was the greatest picture of human flourishing. And if that is the case, then for a gay person or a straight person to give up their sexuality is not bad news. It's wonderful news. There's always hope. The pressure's off. We can, whether we're celibate or married, God is going to help us find that true intimacy and we can find that space to really flourish with him. And so that's why I love the Christian view, that deeper view, the rarefied orthodoxy that you've just talked so elegantly about. And I hope I've talked elegantly about, um, uh, is, is, you know, is, is, is that the pressure is off, Lisa. We don't have to work it out. It's been worked out. For, by Jesus, whether we're celibate, whether we're married, that actually is less important. It's whether we're like Jesus. And if we're like him, we will experience deep intimacy. And he is the fulfillment of David and Jonathan's relationship. He is the son of David. And that intimacy that they experienced was an apocalyptic foretaste of Jesus's own ministry, which he says the greatest love you can have is not to get married, but is to lay down your life for your friends. And he had John, who I love. John Jonathan, son of David. It's kind of interesting, right? There's like a echo there, definitely, of David and Jonathan, son of David with John. <laughs> and he is the, 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 the disciple that Jesus loved. Well, didn't he love all the other disciples? Well, it's because he experienced this heavenly spiritual friendship with John in a particular way, I think. And then the other disciples experienced that after the resurrection. But I think John experiences it right there, even before the resurrection, even before they know Jesus is really who he is, actually God incarnate. <laughs> you know, he experiences it right there and then as the beloved disciple. So yeah, I think it's all about this love that we're talking about. But what I love is when we really get into it, it takes the pressure off. Whether you're gay or straight, it really does. And so thank you so much, Lisa, for going into the deeper veins of the philosophy and reality of love. That's what we're talking about. It's the best topic ever, ever. It's the original question. What is love? That's what fueled all philosophy and all human knowledge. And so Jesus is the summit 
of that particular question and the great answer, the logos to that question. So thank you um, for yeah bringing us into that and just inviting me onto the show today. Thank you for joining us. And how can get people get in contact with you on social media? So the way to get in contact with me on social media is my Twitter is um, David A.C. Bennett and my Instagram is David A.C. Bennett. It's Andrew Constantine. Yes, I'm a quarter Greek. And, uh, <laughs> and you can also find me um, through my book, A War of Loves, or my website, D.A.C. Bennett. Um, and I'm hopefully going to re be restructuring all of that and have some further books coming out on all of the topics we've we've uh, discussed and more so yeah thank you so much david this has been another episode of the g3 project podcast as always you can catch all our past episodes wherever you stream your favorite podcast on youtube or on our website g3project.org remember you can become a monthly supporter uh at g3project.org backslash donate you can give online or give um give uh by mail we have our curriculums all of our merch on our website at g3 project remember here at the g3 project we're helping you know what you believe and why you believe it till next time grace and peace and god bless What's up, everyone? Lisa Fields here, and I'm so excited about our new curriculum, Courageous Conversations. You heard about our popular conference, Courageous Conversations, where we invite the leading pastors, thought leaders, and scholars from conservative and progressive backgrounds for conversations. But we not only want to have those conversations on stage at the conference, but we want you to have them in your everyday life. So we developed a curriculum for you to do just that. Courageous Conversations curriculum, the tools you need for the conversations and culture. You can get that today on Amazon or on our website at Jew3project.org. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Jew3 Project podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can tune into all our past episodes at www.jew3project.org. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. Remember not only to subscribe, but also rate us. That helps us to gauge how we're doing and how you're enjoying the show. And it gives other listeners some ideas about the show as well. So thank you so much for tuning in. Also, remember, we have our Bible engagement app in partnership with Back to the Bible to help you get better engaged in the Bible every single day. You take a survey, it assesses your strengths and weaknesses and sends you Bible verses based on those. So it's a great app. You can download the app by searching in your app store or Google Play, searching G3 Project, and it'll be right there for you. So thank you again. Remember, if you would like to become a monthly partner or a one-time giver, you can do so on our website or by mail. Just go to Jew3Project.com, hit that donate tab, and you'll see the option to mail in a gift or give online. We appreciate you, and I'm so, so thankful for you. God bless, and remember, here at the Jew3 Project, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it.